This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Welcome, everyone, back to our series on the most important battles in the Civil War. We're now looking at the Battle of Antietam. We're back with General McClellan, who he makes a mountain out of a molehill, probably better than any other general uh, we could ever imagine. He's constantly overestimating troop strength of the Confederates. His idea of hope for the best, plan for the worst, he believes in, but he believes to a ridiculous extreme. And there's a quote by Lincoln that I think will kick off this discussion very well because it encapsulates a lot of the blunders that we're going to see in this campaign. Lincoln remarked, in the lead up to the Battle of Antietam, that if McClellan were miraculously given 100,000 reinforcements to advance on Richmond, and keep in mind at this point, he's practically on the doorstep of Richmond, and uh, McClellan would claim that 100,000 reinforcements were necessary uh, in order to go up against um, 200,000 troops, he would then telegraph that he had certain information that the enemy had 400,000 men and he could not advance without reinforcements. So McClellan is eternally overestimating the troop size of the Confederates. So, James, tell us about the background of this battle. Okay, so like you implied, we we left McClellan. He had been driven back. He, As you said, he was on the doorstep of Richmond. His troops could hear the church bells ringing and the clocks chiming, and the Commander for the Confederates had been a man named Joseph Johnston, who was a competent army commander. He wasn't bad, but he got hurt during one of the battles when McClellan was heading toward Richmond, and he was replaced by a fella named Robert E. Lee, who we all have heard of, and we know most of us know quite a bit about Robert E. Lee, or at least some. Robert E. Lee went on the offensive. He was a very aggressive, offensive-minded general, and he attacked McClellan. Pretty much every day for about seven days, they called the battle the seven days. And McClellan, even though the Confederates lost almost every battle on the, during the seven days, McClellan continued to retreat, to retreat, and retreat. And finally, he ends up pretty much at the very tip of the peninsula, the Virginia Peninsula between the York and the James Rivers. Actually, he ends up at a place called Harrison's Landing, but that's not important. The point is, is that Lee had driven McClellan way back from... Richmond and McClellan is not going to do anything else. He's done. He's just going to sit there. So, um, 
and eventually he is going to be ordered back to Washington. But in the meantime, Lincoln comes up with another idea. And what Lincoln does is he's going to gather up, there had been several small armies uh, north of Richmond. There had been one under the command of Irvin McDowell, another one in the Shenandoah Valley, another one in Western Virginia. Lincoln decides to combine all these and make a second army. He knows McClellan is, is pretty much useless at this point, that he's not going to get any more uh, offensive action out of McClellan. So he creates the second army called the Army of Virginia, and it's stationed, appropriately enough, in northern Virginia. And he decides to bring over a new commander. He doesn't actually technically fire McClellan. McClellan is still the commander of the Army of the Potomac. It's just that the Army of the, the the Army of the Potomac is sitting there doing nothing. So Lincoln sends for a man in the West, a general named John Pope. John Pope had had some success in the West. He had captured Island Number 10 on the Mississippi uh, River. And so Pope comes over, and Lincoln gathers up, as I said, gathers up all these armies that have been under Fremont, Banks, and McDowell, puts them under Pope's command, calls in the Army of Virginia, Pope moves the army down to Gordonsville in central Virginia, and there he's able to menace key railroads in Virginia. He also threatens Lee's western flank. Remember that Lee's uh, somewhat removed from Richmond now. He's gone a little bit to the southeast as he's been pushing McClellan back. Uh, now, let's talk about John Pope for just a minute. He's not going to be a huge player in the overall scheme of things, but it's worthy of mentioning that he was a very arrogant man, extremely egotistical, like several generals we've seen, like McClellan himself. Uh, and Pope had a tendency to make these grandiose and bombastic statements. For example, as soon as he arrived in Virginia, he issued a statement and he said, among other things, it was pretty long, but I'll give you the gist of it. He says, I have come to you from the West where we have always seen the backs of our enemies from an army whose business it has been to seek the adversary and to beat him when he was found, whose policy has been attack and not defense. And with those words, Pope insulted every single soldier under his <laughs> command. He's basically saying, well, I come to you from the West where we're better. You know, we actually win battles out there and implying you guys are losers and I'm going to whip you into shape. <laughs> he fights Indian tribes that are basically at a Neolithic level and manages to win. Yeah, well, that's going to be later, but uh, but he did he did defeat some honest to goodness Confederates. But um, anyway, he's going to realize. He, well, he's going to get a serving of humble pie here in a minute. Not to give away too much, but Pope also bragged. He, somebody said, "Where's your headquarters?" And he said, "My headquarters is in the saddle." And some replied that he had his headquarters where his hindquarters <laughs> ought to be. <laughs> oh, nice little war roast. Yeah, that's a good one. I've, I've seen that quote uh, ascribed to Lincoln, although I don't, I'm not sure we know who really said it. But McClellan, unlike, I mean, I'm sorry, Pope, unlike McClellan, was a Republican. You know, most of the top generals were actually Democrats, and they weren't real wild about this uh, full total warfare idea. But Pope was. He said, I'm going to be tougher on the rebels. No more Mr. Nice Guy, in, in essence, is what he said. And Lee who is normally very polite. Robert E. Lee almost never publicly insulted anybody else, but he, he made an exception for Pope. He said, this miscreant Pope must be suppressed. <laughs> and, I mean, just one thing to Lee for his character. I, a lot of people will immediately write him off today when they associate him with the Confederacy. They're saying, oh, Confederacy, racist, and their mind shuts down. But he has been noted by some historians as sort of the the complete, um, the the full expression of what gentlemanly conduct could represent. So uh, the way that if you want an example of what manners and decorum and all these different things would look like in the 19th century, he's a pretty good example. Um, but yeah, what's Lee up to now with Richmond's almost surrounded, maybe not commanded by an aggressive general, but what's he doing at this point? Well, I mean, Richmond's not, you can't really say surrounded anymore because McClellan just kept retreating. I mean, he had it almost surrounded and then he unsurrounded it. <laughs> so, but Lee, like I said, Lee pushed McClellan way back, uh, back up against the river. Uh, and he, he just sensed that McClellan was done. He understood McClellan. One thing about Lee is he had an uncanny ability to almost read the mind of his opponents. It's, it was really amazing. And so what he does is he divides his army into two corps. Okay, and if you remember uh, way back when we talked about what a corps is, uh, a regiment on paper has 
a thousand men and probably I'd say the average regiment at this point in the war is about 500. So a regiment is 500. A brigade has two to four regiments. So let's average that out and say 1500. Uh, a division has two to four of those. So let's say a division is about 4,500, 4,000 maybe. And then a core is two or three of those. So a core is going to be about 12 to 15,000 maybe. So, uh, in this case, Jackson uh, gets one corps and Longstreet gets the other corps. So those are Lee's chief two lieutenants, his right arm and his left arm, so to speak. Uh, it may have been more than 15,000. I'm not sure exactly how many soldiers. But he gives about half of his army to Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, and he sends him north to deal with Pope. In other words, when he said this miscreant Pope must be suppressed, he's gonna he's not just going to talk about it. He's going to do it. So he sends Jackson uh up north to deal with Pope. Pope is near the old Bull Run battlefield, or Manassas. Lee and Longstreet stay behind to watch McClellan, who is still at Harrison's Landing, which again is right up against the, one of the rivers. Uh, so they're just going to make sure McClellan doesn't get any funny ideas, but, but this is McClellan, right? He's not going to do anything. But just in case, you don't want to leave Richmond completely unguarded. So Lee... Lee breaks a fundamental rule of warfare at the time, and he does this again and again and again. And the funny thing is, is he almost always gets away with it. Maybe always gets away with it. And the rule is you never divide your army in the face of a superior foe, or I should say a foe of superior strength. And McClellan is not a superior foe in terms of general ability, <laughs> but uh, McClellan has more guys than Lee. Of course, as you mentioned earlier, McClellan thinks Lee has twice as many as he has. <laughs> but McClellan is, I mean, I'm sorry, Lee is going to divide his army and send half of it up to deal with uh, General John Pope. On August 9th, he runs into Pope's advance guards and he defeats them in a battle called Cedar Mountain. The Federals pull back. They retreat, which is what kind of the, the Union Army's greatest <laughs> talent at this point, at least in the East, not in the West. But... Uh, and, and Lee gets word that McClellan and the Army of the Potomac are being recalled to Washington. So then Lee, McClellan's leaving. He's bugging out on Lincoln's order. So that frees up Lee to send his other corps, commanded by James Longstreet, north to unite with Jackson. So the whole army now is north of Richmond instead of to the, west of, or to the east of Richmond. They go up north, and the whole army is going to take on Pope's Army of the Virginia while McClellan's guys are taking a boat trip back to Washington. <laughs> Lee once again divides his army and he sends Stonewall Jackson around Pope's right flank, which is, uh, you know, obviously the Confederate left. Jackson gets around Pope's army. He reaches his rear and he captures an enormous supply depot at Manassas Junction. And I'll just go ahead with the battle now. Um, yeah. Returning the, to the site of the first Confederate victory. Yeah, it's like we're going to have deja vu here. <laughs> it's do over. And, of course, you have a different com Union commander now and a different Confederate commander. So let's see what happens. On August 29th, uh, Pope realizes Jackson is behind him, so he turns around and attacks Jackson. And McClellan is back in Washington now, but he refuses to send two corps to aid Pope. Pope asks for reinforcements, and McClellan, the man who always is demanding reinforcements, he won't send reinforcements when he's being asked for them. Uh, McDowell, General McDowell, who had been the overall commander on the Union side at first bull run, he's now uh, a subordinate commander. He fumbles and messes up and doesn't do a good job. He's inept. And another corps commander named Fitz John Porter disobeys a direct order from Pope to attack. In other words, General Pope says, General Porter, I want you to march into place and, and launch an attack. <clears throat> and Porter just says, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> just no. Uh, by the way, I should add that Porter later will be court-martialed and kicked out of the army for this. Rightly so, I think. But anyway, so Pope is fighting Jackson. And then he gets hit on his other side by James Longstreet. And they drive the Federals from the field. Once again, it's almost like history repeats itself. The, the layout of the battle is a little bit different from first bull run, and it's a much bigger battle. There's many more casualties. There's many more uh, people fighting on each side, but the result is the same. The federal troops retreat all the way back to Washington. I will say that this time it wasn't a rout. We saw last time in the or a while back in the first battle of bull run that 
the federal troops pretty much skedaddled. Most of them threw all their stuff away and ran for their lives. Well, this time it's a little bit more orderly retreat. Uh, but by the end, the Confederates have 9,000 casualties while the Federals have 16,000. So the Blue Coats lose almost twice as many men killed, captured, and wounded as the Confederates. It's another total disaster for the Union Army. They just had disaster after disaster. Well, Lincoln decides, uh, this guy Pope, he, he obviously d doesn't know what he's doing. And we have to be fair, it wasn't really completely Pope's fault. If he had gotten those reinforcements from McClellan, if his uh, subordinate commanders had done their jobs, like, like, how about obey my orders? That would be helpful. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, it always helps when somebody doesn't just sit there. Uh, but nevertheless, the buck stops with Pope, and Lincoln removes him from command, and he sends him to Minnesota to deal with the Sioux. <laughs> there had been a Sioux uprising in Minnesota. So Pope is going to go off and fight the Indians, and then now we have uh, Pope's Army of the Virginia and McClellan's Army of the Potomac all back cowering in Washington. Lincoln decides to turn back to the young Napoleon. George McClellan, he puts in command. Yep, once again, give him another chance, Lincoln. He's, he, say, you say a lot of things about Lincoln, but one thing you can't deny, he was patient. <laughs> Probably too patient. There's a nice quote he has about him. I like that, about McClellan. Oh, yeah, he says, hey, we're going to use all the tools we have. The reason I put that in there is because some of the... <laughs> You know, the listeners probably going, you're going to put who in command? What? McClellan again? Like, and, and my students sometimes ask, well, why would he put him back in command? And, and, and the reason is, is who else was he going to pick? Uh, somebody might say, well, Grant, well, Grant's busy. He's out trying to uh, starting to work on Vicksburg out in the West and, and he's needed out there. And there just wasn't anybody else available. Uh, the one thing, the one thing the federal army needed at this point was another training session, if you will. They needed to be retrained, and they needed their morale to be raised. And th those are the two things that McClellan was very good at. So there was really nobody better to once again whip this army back into shape. Right. And, 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 yeah, and the people, and, and a lot of people at the time asked him, why did you do this? And he said, we must use all the tools we have. I mean, here's this guy, McClellan, he's in Washington. What are we going to do? Uh, he might become a problem if we try to just have him sit there and do nothing. So let's put him to work. Right. I mean, he does have organizational ability. He can inspire soldier loyalty, which um, at a point where they're probably starting to become demoralized is a useful attribute. And yeah, it's shameful that he withheld troops while always asking for them for others. But um, again, I mean, this is a factor that there aren't other generals who are being tested um, by commanding forces as large as this. It's sort of like you have to um, you need to go Mach 3 or Mach 4, but you only have a few experimental aircraft. One of them keeps malfunctioning, but you're not really sure if you want to test out another experimental aircraft that might completely disintegrate. Uh, so these are the difficulties that they have at this point. Yeah. You, I mean, you, sometimes you just got to dance with the one that brung you, as they <laughs> say, as we say in the South. Yeah. I mean, bring out the Southernisms. If we're in the Civil War, now's the time to, to do as much as you can. I'll bring out all the Southernisms I know, mister. Yeah, I do declare. All right. <laughs> so Antietam. All right. Now, well, now we move to the next battle and this one's major this is our key battle actually the second bull run was just kind of a lead up to it um robert e lee wants to keep the initiative he's just won a stellar victory another one uh over the union forces and one thing that we don't realize is how much an army unless you've been in the military and you've been in logistics which probably not too many of our listeners have uh i certainly haven't I don't know from personal experience, although I've studied this quite a bit, but armies eat a lot. And these are huge armies. We're talking 60, 70 to 100,000 men, sometimes on the Union side, more than 100,000. And it takes several hundred tons of supplies every day just to keep the army alive. And these armies have been fighting in Virginia now for well over a year, you know, almost a year and a half. Uh, well, okay, more like a year. But anyway, so they've been in there in a year, and the countryside was all eaten up. They had, these, the two armies had eaten pretty much all the crops, all the livestock, and 
you know, all the pigs, cows and everything. And not, not a hundred percent obviously, but, but it was starting to run out. Uh, there were almost no supplies left and Lee decided, well, if I want this army to continue to survive, I've got to give Virginia a break. I've got to give Virginia time to heal the land. I've got time for the crops to grow time for more animals to grow up <laughs> so that we can kill them and eat them. <laughs> and, uh, basically he wants to go somewhere well, they have, where they're going to be fresh supplies. He wanted to go north and west of Washington. He wanted to lure the Federals out of Washington. So he's going to go on the offensive. He's going to take the battle to the north. And he has another goal, too, and because he knew that there was a pretty decent amount of sympathy for the Confederacy in the state of Maryland. So he thought maybe if he'll go to Maryland, uh, then he'll just issue a hue and cry and try to recruit people. And he thought thousands and thousands of Marylanders would flock to his army. They actually took a lot of extra rifles just for that reason, so that these new volunteers they're going to get, these new recruits will come and, and that we can go ahead and arm them. All right. So does the, call, work, does the call to the Marylanders work? Good question. Um, so the Army of the Potomac, I'm sorry, the Army of the Northern Virginia, Army of Northern Virginia, there's no the in it. That's Lee's army. They crossed the Potomac River into Maryland on September the 4th at a point west of Washington. And Lee actually wants to go all the way into Pennsylvania. Maryland is really, really skinny at this point, and so it doesn't take too long to get across Maryland. He was hoping to get to the Federal Rail Center at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And as the army marched, they the bands played and the, the men sang the song Maryland, My Maryland, which I believe is the Maryland national, not national anthem, the state song. Uh, but it didn't work. <laughs> very, very few Marylanders joined Lee's army. Part of the problem is, is they were going through the wrong part of Maryland. They were going through Western Maryland, which was pretty staunchly unionist. Most of the pro-Confederate sentiment was in Baltimore and other parts that were further to the east. Um, plus, a lot of the secessionists and pro-Confederate people were in jail, thanks to Abraham Lincoln. But uh, so the whole recruiting thing doesn't work. Very, very few people join Lee's army. That was a great disappointment to Lee. They march to Frederick, Maryland, and there Lee decides once again to divide his army. Um, they want, he wants to spread them out so they can each get plenty of supplies, plenty of food and everything they need. About half of them under Jackson uh, attack Harper's Ferry. By the way, Harper's Ferry, I think we've mentioned this before, but it was a federal arsenal. And there were about 12,000 troops there. Lee didn't want to have this group of 10 to 12,000 Union soldiers in his rear as he was going into Maryland. So he sends his most trusted lieutenant, Stonewall Jackson, to Harper's Ferry, and the rest of the army stays in Maryland. Now, this is an interesting situation. This is It's hard to imagine. This is just shocking, and it blows my mind every time I think about it. But during this campaign, during this march from Virginia into Maryland, between one-third and one-half of Lee's army fell out of the ranks, just disappeared, just walked away, ran away, whatever. Uh, some of them did that because they didn't want to fight outside the South and others were just hungry or exhausted. They, the army, as I mentioned, was struggling with food and supplies and some of these guys just couldn't go any further. And then something very interesting happens. One of the great stories of the war on September 13, a couple of federal soldiers, uh, are going through this area that where Lee's army had been just a few days before. It's in Frederick, Maryland, if I remember correctly. And they find a bunch of cigars and they think, oh, cool, cigars, man, we can smoke them. But they've got a piece of paper wrapped around them. And so they unwrap the paper and they look at it and they say, hmm, what is this? And they realize very quickly it looks like some kind of orders and it's signed by Robert E. Lee. Hmm, what could this be? So they run it to their captain and he runs it up to the colonel and the colonel runs it to the brigadier general and so on. And it, it this piece of paper works its way all the way up to General McClellan. And McClellan realizes that this is a copy. It's a complete copy of Lee's marching orders. <laughs> Can you imagine that? So, I mean, it tells where the various divisions of Lee's army are going, when they're going to be there, where they're, what they're planning to do. I mean, it's almost like if you're a football coach and you get a copy of the other team's playbook. I mean, it's just a gift, almost like a gift from above. 
It's simply amazing. McClellan can't believe his luck. And he realizes that Lee has divided his army. And so McClellan, if he could move fast and if he could pounce on each piece of the army, he could destroy this army. McClellan even says, he turns to an aide and he says, here is a paper with which if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. Strong words. Yeah, I know. Famous last words. Let's see how that works out for him. All right. So let's see if he's going to whip Bobby Lee. Uh, He goes after Lee a little more quickly than usual, but this is McClellan, right? So it's still not quickly. And uh, so a small number. We have a little bit of a skirmish, just a small clash between some federal and Confederate soldiers. And by the way, Lee finds out about McClellan finding his orders. And so Lee's trying to bring his army back together as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, Jackson is fighting the, he's attacking the garrison at Harper's Ferry. And the, the garrison surrenders on the 15th. Jackson takes 12,000 Union prisoners. Lee orders him to march to the, the town of Sharpsburg, Maryland, and meet him there. And the rest of the Confederate army which is about 30,000 to 35,000 men. They take up positions on the crest of a ridge near the town. The Potomac was at their back. So always kind of a little bit uh, risky to position yourself so that your back is up to a river because you don't have anywhere to go to retreat. There was one ford, but only one, only one place where they could cross it. And in their front ran a creek called Antietam. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. All right. So this is the moment of truth. And uh, just a couple of comments on the things that you mentioned, because there's just so much to unpack there. Uh, When you mentioned that one third and one half of Lee's army fell out of ranks, some people might be surprised because we'd think, well, if you fall out of ranks um, today, couldn't you be court-martialed if you're in Iraq or if Afghanistan? Well, yes, but keep in mind you're fighting halfway around the world and you can't really just wander off into Afghanistan and you know find your way to what some new lifestyle. Um, these are people who, with the psychology of defending your homeland, that's important to understand. This is a battle fought on American soil, so that introduces new dynamics. Also, one of the challenges uh, of large militaries when you have a lot of irregular forces or non-professional soldiers, brand new fresh recruits, which is very much the case in the Civil War, these are the cases you have when you don't have disciplinary issues. And far more in the ancient world, unless you're looking at something like the Roman Empire, which is an abnormal case in the ancient world when when it does have a large professional class, you see this all over the place. And... um, Just one last thing, uh, before McClellan uh, found those orders on uh, September 13th, uh, he commented on September 19th that he had a, he forwarded to an officer that he had a not fully reliable cavalry report that 100,000 rebels had crossed the Potomac and a a follow-up report that an enemy numbered 110,000 near Frederick. So he's before he gets this order, he's sitting there watching and imagining the full fury of the Confederacy. So anyway, back to Antietam. Yeah. It's a good point that you bring up. McClellan doesn't know about all the desertions. And of course, McClellan is McClellan. And every time there's one Confederate soldier, he thinks it's two or three, (laughs) but I I also want to piggyback on something you were mentioning, um, which I think is a very good point. 
the psychology of the war changes at this point. As soon as, well, let me just say, originally the Confederates were fighting for their homeland. We, I think I mentioned this quote once early on, but somebody asked a Confederate soldier, why are you fighting? And he said, well, I'm fighting because you're down here. Right. <laughs> and it's one thing when you're fighting off invaders and defending your home, but then when you go on the offensive and you take the battle into, the, and you're the invader all of a sudden, then it just, the war loses some of its, uh, I guess it's moral rectitude or it's, uh, it's righteousness, or I don't know what you want to say, but it, 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 it just, a lot of people lose the will to fight because they didn't sign up to go invade the North. They signed up to defend their home. So I think that's a very important aspect of this battle that we cannot uh, neglect. All right, let's, let's talk about the specifics of the battle right now. Now, by all rights, McClellan should have whipped Bobby Lee. Uh, he should have should have crushed the, the army. This, this could, have been, could have very easily been the end of the war. Well, I don't want to say very easily because there were still a lot of Confederate soldiers there. But what ends up happening is you, McClellan never coordinates the attack. And instead of having all three, he divides his army into three wings, okay? And very simply, he's got a left, he's got a center, and he's got a right. And just to do a mental map, the the armies are essentially laid out north to south. So if you were looking at a map, um, if you again, I always say this, if you can, listener, pull up a map, uh, Google, pause us, Google ba Battle of Antietam and find a map. But if you can't, just imagine the Union Army is on the right side of the map and they are laid out from top to bottom and the Confederate Army is on the left side of the map and they're laid out from top to bottom. The top part is the Union right and obviously the Confederate left. And the bottom part is the Confederate right and the Union left. And right behind, on the far left side of the map, behind the Confederates, is the Potomac River. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, there's only one place where they can cross. So it's a pretty precarious position. So the battle, the battle ends up, in, I, I'm not sure if I finished my thought on this, but McClellan doesn't attack with all three parts of his army. He doesn't attack with the left, right, and center at the same time. And so it essentially turns into three separate battles. Uh, we start with the Confederate left or the Union right, the top part of the map. McClellan had a total of 70,000 men, and uh, let's see. The, and so he attacks on the left first. And the fact that he doesn't attack with his entire army at the same time means that Lee has the freedom to move troops back and forth freely. Instead of, you know, if you, if you hit the whole thing at the same time, if the middle and the right and the left are all having to fight, well, they can, none of them can give each other troops. But if you just hit one side, the side that's not being attacked obviously can send reinforcements over. So huge mistake on McClellan's part. Um, on the left, again, that's the Confederate left, the Union right, uh, the general in command there, the Corps commander is named Joseph Hooker. We'll talk more about him later. But Hooker is a very aggressive general. He attacks the Confederate Corps, which is commanded by Stonewall Jackson. The Confederates were hidden behind a cornfield, and the Bluecoats' objective was a plateau just beyond the cornfield on which there was a small white church owned by a sect called the Dunkards. Um, I think I'll pause. I was going to talk about Hooker a little bit more, but I think I'll wait until uh, the Battle of Chancellorsville. So help me remember that, Scott. Sounds <laughs> we'll good. We'll talk okay. about Hooker. Hooker later, and I won't tell the listener why we're going to wait till then, but they can probably figure it out. So the fighting through this cornfield, and keep in mind this corn is it's in it's ripe and it's tall. It's taller than a lot of the men, and so you can't see anything. You can't see people, so you're just shooting into a bunch of corn basically. And um, the fighting goes back and forth. It's brutal fighting. Many men experienced something called battle madness or what I call battle madness anyway, they just kind of go nuts. They attack maniacally. They forget about their own safety, and they just turn into demons, and they laugh. They just turn into crazy men. Um, Hooker's men are pushing back the Confederates. They're closing in on the church, but then a division under Confederate General John B. Hood pushed the Federals back. Hooker is shot, and he has to leave the field. And that kind of blunts the Federal assault, and it ends up just being kind of a draw. The Federals don't reach the church. We'll talk more about General John Hood later. John Hood was the commander or had been the commander of a unit called the Texas Brigade, 
John Hood had been a Union Army commander, a, a gen, an officer, not a general, but he had been a lower officer in the U.S. Army uh, prior to the Civil War, and he had been stationed in Texas. And so he was kind of an honorary Texan, even though he wasn't from Texas originally. But anyway, uh, what happens is there's, there's so much bullets, so many bullets going back and forth that this corn is actually being cut. And one union officer reports that every stalk of corn in the greater part of the field was cut as closely as with a knife, and the slain lay in rows precisely as they had stood in their ranks a few minutes before. And there were more than 8,000 total casualties in this cornfield alone. And the 1st Texas Regiment, they suffered 80% casualties there. So not a good day for Texas. Jackson, looking out over the carnage, says, God has been very good to us this day. <laughs> He could definitely see it that way. And um, and I think, well, one uh, thing I thought of when you're mentioning um, Stonewall Jackson's successful flanking maneuver and the the Union Corps is uh, unified, that these Napoleonic tactics, which we mentioned a few episodes ago, are dangerously outdated in the middle of the 19th century with more accurate rifles. However, there's still components of it that can be successful. And I think Stonewall Jackson is someone who does use them well. He splits up his forces, but that's classic Napoleon. You have a weaker force, occupy a bigger force, and then you do a flanking maneuver, which requires a very competent general uh, who's aggressive and can have some well-trained troops, which for the most time he seems to fit that criteria. And with the lumbering unit forces, they're sort of like the Anglo-Dutch alliance or the Prussians. They're moving so slowly that uh, Napoleon can pick them off. So in some ways, this is analogous where a Napoleonic tactic can be used well, but that's one time it uses well versus the many times it just leads to a needless loss of life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jackson was, was the anti-McClellan. I mean, he was a master of traveling light, moving fast, surprising the enemy, popping up all of a sudden where, oh my gosh, where'd he come from? Uh, and so that's really, we're going to see that again and again and again. Surprise was very important to Jackson. We we read a quote last time, or I don't know I don't know which episode it was. It was two or three episodes ago where Jackson said, "Always mystify, surprise, and mislead your enemy," and that's exactly what he liked to do. Plus, he was very much it's just kind of a very very religious man, very much an Old Testament kind of guy, <laughs> you know, like a, a modern day Joshua, where you know just kill him, kill them all, kill them all, and God will bless us. Uh, okay, so let's move over to the Confederate Center now, which, of course, not surprisingly, is also the Union Center. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, in the center of the battlefield, the rebels had dug in in a sunken road. It, it had been a, a trail, a wagon trail from a long time ago. And back then, obviously, with you didn't have paving or anything, and or at least you didn't most of the time. And so the, the road had gotten lower and lower and it sunk in. And so it serves as a ready-made trench. Lee orders that the position be held at all cost. The Federals attack, and they get really, really close, and when they're just a few yards away, the Confederate commander, whose name was John B. Gordon, he orders his troops to fire. The, the Bluecoats retreated, and they keep coming back once, twice, three times, four times, five times. Their commander was killed, and Gordon, the Confederate commander, was shot five times. Ouch. Um, and there were so many bodies in this lane, so much blood was spilt in this sunken road that the Confederates gave it the name, the Bloody Lane. And the Confederate line was just about to break. And the, the, the Union was just about to break through the center, and all of a sudden McClellan orders the attack to stop. He tells a subordinate, a subordinate asks him, should I send in the reserves? Can I go in? And he says, no, it wouldn't be prudent. Imagine that? Snatching uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what is this? Wouldn't be prudent. Not going to do it. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like shades of Dana Carvey imitating George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be prudent. McClellan had a tendency to just lose his his focus and to lose courage. We saw how after uh, the the Battle of Fair Oaks in seven or seven pines, which was on the peninsula, we saw how. When he looked over the battlefield and saw the carnage, McClellan just said, victory's not worth it at this price. He, he didn't have the ability to just shake it off. And I know that's got to be incredibly hard when you look around and you see thousands of your soldiers who were alive 
one hour, two hours ago, and now they're dead. And it's because of you. It's because of your orders. I mean, that's got to be incredibly hard. But like Robert E. Lee said, a good general has to be able to love his army, but at the same time order the destruction of the thing that he loves. And McClellan just couldn't do that. And it might seem like we're beating a dead horse here, but really this is this is the historical record, so bear with us. And James and I discussed elsewhere that if you watch Band of Brothers, which I always highly recommend, and if you have Amazon, yes. it's there completely for free. Uh, but in the very first episode, Easy Company of the 101st Airborne Division, the paratroopers who land on um, the other side of the beaches of Normandy, uh, they land before D-Day. The first episode, they're being trained by um, Lieutenant, I think, played by David Schwimmer, who does an excellent job drilling them into combat readiness. But when it comes to actually working on the field and drilling on the field, he is completely inept and fails. And that's uh, the analogy we saw there. So um, a good flesh and blood example of McClellan, if you'd like to see something, watch that first episode of Band of Brothers, and maybe that can give you more of an idea of what we're talking about here. Exactly. So now moving on to the Confederate right or the Union left, there was a Union Corps commanded by a man named Ambrose Burnside. We'll talk more about him later. He's also an interesting guy. So many colorful characters in the Civil War. I love it. But Burnside's job was to cross a stone bridge that crossed Antietam Creek. So he was supposed to march his corps across this bridge and uh, get to the uh, Confederate right and hopefully turn the Confederate right. Problem is, there were a lot of Confederate sharpshooters, and a sharpshooter, once again, is just, today we would call it a sniper, but they called them sharpshooters back then. He had 12,000 men against only 400 rebels, but the rebels not only had sharpshooters on a hill nearby, but they had 12 cannon, and so it's very hard to get 12,000 men across a single stone bridge, especially when you're being shot at by 12 <laughs> cannon and, and hundreds of sharpshooters. And so the, the Confederates all this time, they're pouring down withering fire into the rebels. The rebels just, they can't, I mean, I'm sorry, into the Federals. The Federals or the Union, they just can't get across that bridge. They try and they try again and they're just getting devastated. It finally, the, finally they do after three hours. It takes three hours for them to get across the bridge. Burnside soldiers push the Confederates back toward the road that led to the ford across the Potomac. So remember, there's only one ford that the Confederate army could use to escape if they need to escape. And the Union soldiers are just about to cut off that, re that route of escape. And it looks like disaster is looming for the Confederates, but at the last minute, and you cannot make this stuff up, this is like something out of Hollywood, at the last minute, the very last Confederate division of Jackson's who had been at uh, Harper's Ferry, and they're under a man named A.P. Hill. They arrive from Harper's Ferry. They get there just in the nick of time, and they protect the road, and they stop the Union advance. Hill's arrival, which had been after a forced march, by the way, a forced march is just like you don't stop. You march as fast as you can night and day, and this saves Lee's army. Burnside asks McClellan for reinforcements, but can you guess what McClellan said? <laughs> well, sure, here, I'll send you 20,000 more guys. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> I don't think he said this time wouldn't wouldn't be prudent, but uh, but he said no. So once again, this chance to cut off the Confederate Army and basically trap them against the Potomac River fails. All right. So the outcome. Let's talk about the outcome, and then you we'll talk a little about we'll wrap up McClellan. We'll put him to bed finally. <laughs> McClellan in this battle, he did not even use 25 percent of his army. The Federals pushed the Confederates almost back to the river, as I mentioned, but uh, it just, in the end, they just always seem to fail. And this battle is the bloodiest single day in American history. Um, 10,500 Confederates were casualties. By the way, that's one-third of Lee's army, with about 1,600 killed. 12,500 Federals fell, That's and 2,100 killed. So you can see, uh, once again, the Union loses more troops. And this is twice the number of American casualties at D-Day, just to put that in perspective. So a total of about 23,000 Americans are either killed or wounded or missing. Um, that's just an amazingly bloody day. We'd had several bloody battles before this, but this takes the cake. At Bloody Lane, the sunken road that I mentioned, one officer claimed to have walked 100 yards over bodies without touching the ground. We've seen that before at Shiloh. Uh, just so much killing, so much carnage 
that you can't even hardly go anywhere without stepping on a body. Now, Lee remained on the field on the 18th. The two sides exchanged wounded, and then Lee and McClellan does nothing to stop, or almost nothing to stop him. Lee goes back across the Potomac and retreats into Virginia. So Lee gets away. McClellan lets him off scot-free. And there you go. So that's, that's, that's the Battle of Antietam in a nutshell. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at MIDI Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Well, I'd just like to bullet point the blunders of McClellan, because this is something that has given a lot of food for thought for Civil War historians. And when they talk about the greatest mistakes made, some they say that if there were a competent general in command, if uh, Grant were in charge at this point and he was able to effectively counter Lee, he would marshal an effective response that most people would think is good. I mean, Confederate forces could have been crushed. You see a few cases here where the Confederates are still escaping by the skin of their teeth, beside, even though they're sort of operating at the height of their powers at this point. Um, we'll see later on as the series goes on, but once they start to really run out of manpower, uh, run out of supplies, when blockades go into it, really get locked down, it's just going to get worse and worse. Um, despite all of that, the Union could have made it without McClellan's blunder. So I just want to bullet point these right now. And there's a great book uh, I've mentioned a few times by Edward Bonnekemper on the 10 biggest Civil War blunders. Uh, so the blunders in the Maryland campaign, we've said this over and over again, but it can come down to his self-deception about enemy strength. So he's usually asserted, McClellan, that he's grossly outnumbered by the enemy. Uh, some people think that he was making up his figures from whole cloth, the enemy's forces, while others think that his intelligence chief, Alan Pinkerton, was kept busy trying to find evidence to support the general's already issued pronouncements about enemy strength. So go out there and find the numbers to justify my hunch. Uh, and McClellan's estimate of 120,000 men that I talked about earlier was based on rumors and guesses from uninformed sources. Um, so here are just some of the main blunders here. So when McClellan discovers Lee's campaign order, the lost order, McClellan learns of the divided army and vulnerable state, but he pursued that opportunity in Lee's army with slowness, even though he knows exactly where they're going. He sacrifices the he sacrificed the eleven thousand five hundred Union troops taken prisoner at Harper's Ferry. He allows all of Lee's separated troops to reunite. Um, another mistake is McClellan arrived at Sharpsburg, Maryland, the site of the Battle of Antietam before any of the rebel troops from Harper's Ferry had returned to Lee, but he didn't attack when he had a four to one advantage. Uh, he squandered his manpower superiority on the day of the battle of Antietam. He attacks ineffectively and with a portion of his army on the North of the field, then a portion in the center and then another portion in the South. So Lee could switch his defenders from one front to another. Uh, like James mentioned, he keeps more than a quarter of his of his army in reserve and unused during the entire battle. Uh, he misused his cavalry by failing to harass Lee's wings, uh, discover fords across Antietam or scout for threats such as um, Ambrose uh, Power, Powell Hill's uh, late day arrival. So his cavalry is kept in reserve in the rear, which I th think it was to protect his artillery and his uh, headquarters. 
And he missed an opportunity to destroy Lee's army on the 18th when Lee uh, recklessly remained at Sharpsburg, even though McClellan had more fresh troops than Lee's entire army. So wouldn't be prudent. (laughs) Wouldn't be not going to do it. That's yeah. Just um, look up on YouTube. Just uh, check out Dana Carvey, George Bush 41. If uh, that era of SNL was before your time again, this will make everything click into place and you have a flesh and blood example of McClellan. Yeah, some of our younger listeners have, what is he talking about? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. It's history of all stripes, whether 150 years ago or 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Wow. Okay. Something like that. 20 at least. So there you go. What are the consequences? Would you say of Antietam? Well, the battle is not a major tactical victory for either side. It's basically a draw. They both end up pretty much in the same place where they started, but the Union holds the field. So in one sense, you can call it a strategic Union victory because the the Union's still there and the Confederacy retreats. I always tell my students, you know, if you get in a fist fight with somebody and he runs away, who won? (laughs) Well, you did. Uh, Whoever leaves loses. Uh, Lincoln actually visited the battlefield afterward. There's a famous photo of the two sitting together and he tries to get McClellan to pursue Lee. And and of course, McClellan refuses because that's what you do if you're George McClellan. And finally, Lincoln has had enough. The, The very patient Lincoln, McClellan's been in command for how long? Like over a year. And he removes him. McClellan finally gets fired. McClellan wrote in a letter, I think it was to his wife, he said, they have made a great mistake, alas, for my country. The man had no concept of reality. (laughs) He he wasn't able to see his failings and his mistake in the least. Uh, But there were some good things that came out of this for the Union. I mean, first of all, the Union blocked Lee from invading the North and sent him back, packing back to Virginia. Uh, although it took, they should have done more. They should have destroyed the army, but at least we got them out of the North. They're not that close to Washington anymore. And this victory, uh, first of all, one thing it does is it, it has international ramifications. It persuades the British not to get involved in the war. The British government had been thinking about offering mediation or even possibly aiding the South. Uh, there are a lot of British politicians and others that wanted to do that. But after this, they decided, you know, Lee's really, really good, but he's not that good. And I don't know that the South is going to win. Britain doesn't want to back a loser, so they decide not to. And this was also enough of a union victory for Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. We'll talk more about this in a sidetrack episode that we're going to issue soon about emancipation. But suffice it to say for now that Lincoln did not want to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves in areas under rebellion, until after the Union had won a victory. And so this is the closest thing he's going to get probably for a while. So he realizes, okay, here's my chance. And the fact that the Union is going to change the war now for a, a... it, it, it was originally just a war to preserve the Union, to reunite the Union. Now it becomes a war to do that and to, uh, to destroy slavery. And that's going to make it even harder for Britain to come in on the side of the South. And France, too, I might add, because Britain was very anti-slavery. They had abolished slavery themselves. They can't go in and aid a, a, a side that's fighting to preserve slavery. So this is a real coup for Lincoln in the North. And for For this reason, many modern scholars actually call this battle the turning point of the war. You know, for a long time, a lot of people said Gettysburg was the turning point of the war. But now scholars have a tendency to say, well, Gettysburg doesn't really accomplish all that much. And we'll see what happens with that later. But, uh, for example, there's a teaching company course called Turning Points in American History. And one of the turning points is the Battle of Antietam, not the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, There's another lecture series called... Oh, what is it called? Like myths, correcting American history myths or something like that. Great myths. And and the myth, there's a whole lecture on the myth of Gettysburg being a turning point. That professor also argues that Antietam is the turning point. I personally, my my viewpoint on that is that there's not just one single turning point. There's There's several turning points. And I think this is one of many. But this is a very important one because, again, this is going to lead to emancipation which uh, makes it impossible for France and Britain to jump in on the side of the South. 
And that's, a that's good, all I got. And that's a good point, too, that with uh, the British not mediating, and we have to keep in mind with the Civil War, it's not just the battles that are guiding these affairs. Um, this series we're doing is about the most important battles, so that's what we're focusing on. But history and all of its complexity would not want to be so reductionist that you're leaving out social issues, economics, right. international diplomacy. So the South believing that, well, we have cash crops, we have bumper crops, and we'll continue to sell to the British because they so need our precious cotton. Well, this is an emerging age of globalization, if you want to call it that, where there are other markets that, yeah, it's more pricey, but they can still get by. And like James said, this is a turning point, and this partly has to do for military reasons. And maybe that's why Gettysburg looks so attractive, because from a purely military standpoint, you could see it that way. But when you take into fact these other non-military matters, um, and even some people call Vicksburg a turning point as well, in addition. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we'll talk about that more on the effect of Vicksburg and what that has to do with um, the South's access to resources. Um, So... War is complex. A total war is very complicated. There are many moving parts, so we don't want to leave that out. With that in mind, we thought that it would be useful to dig much deeper into emancipation because this is an issue that has been simmering for decades. And so we're going to devote a whole episode to that in the next episode in this series. All right. Well, that was the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers and especially our spy masters, Baron Fraser, Carl from Norway, Chris from Maine, and Melissa Sarnowski. And I'll explain what that means in a second. If you want to support the show and help me keep producing this content, there are four easy ways for you to do it. One, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and there you'll find instructions. Two, join our Facebook group, which you can find if you just search for History Unplugged, And please like and share posts that I put up about new episodes. Three, submit a question to me so that I can answer it on air. You can email me at info at historyonthenet.com or leave a voicemail. And again, go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and you'll find instructions. Lastly, and I think this one is the best, is to become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. But it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com slash unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free. All 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of Intelligence Officer... You can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Ottoman Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the Eunuch, the Harem Servant Girl, and the Soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of Spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the Scouts and Intelligence Officers, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three-pack of hardcover history books, plus you will be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history, and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com slash unplugged. Again, that's patreon.com slash unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.